Welcome everyone to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Andrea Spiker from the University of Wisconsin. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Winston Gwathney, who practices sports medicine and hip arthroscopy as an associate professor at the University of Virginia and is the residency program director and vice chair of education. Dr. Gwathney was the author of the editorial commentary titled, Repeat Revision Hip Arthroscopy, Unaddressed Femoral Acetabular Impingement, Labral Damage, and Capsular Deficiency Are Commonly Encountered, which was published in the December 2021 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal. This commentary focused on the article titled, Repeat Revision Hip Arthroscopy Outcomes Match That of Initial Revision, but Not That of Primary Surgery for Femoral Acetabular Impingement Syndrome, also published in the same issue. Welcome, Dr. Gwathmi, and thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Audrey. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Winston, can you start our conversation by telling us a little bit about your practice and your experience with both primary and revision hip arthroscopy? Exactly. So I'm uh, I'm here at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. This is my ninth year in practice, and I am the uh, I'm the only hip arthroscopist here at this institution. And so obviously, I've sort of built this uh, practice from the ground up. You know, back in 2013 when I came here to basically start a hip practice. And over the course of the past nine years, I've basically evolved into the, uh, both a primary and revision hip arthroscopist here. Probably do about 200, 250 hip scopes per year. I'd say about 10% of those are revisions. Great. And in your editorial, you gave us a sense of your overall approach to revision hip arthroscopy specifically. So can you distill this down for the listeners and give us a few general rules that apply to revision hip arthroscopy in your practice? Yeah. So I think... Um, you know, the more you, the more hips you end up doing, the more you start seeing kind of modes of failure and modes of uh, of why these hips don't do as well as you'd like them to do. And so, I guess I guess the value of being a revision hip arthroscopist is being able to see, you know, the errors that are made probably the first time. And so, I think over the course of, of nine years, I've learned a lot about primary hip arthroscopy by doing revision hip arthroscopy. So my first rule probably is trying to figure out what went wrong the first time, whether it be a bony problem or a soft tissue problem, and see if I can address that in the second surgery and make sure that I don't make the same mistake twice, if that makes sense. And so I think that my general approach for reading hip arthroscopy is trying to figure out what went wrong the first time. And the second, the second approach obviously would be to, to execute it well the second time, if that makes sense. And are you using preoperative imaging then, for the most part, clinical exam to figure out what went wrong, or is that something that you're doing at the time of a revision hip arthroscopy? I think your your evaluation of the patient in clinic ends up being pretty critical. I mean, obviously, what you want to do is listen to the patient, hear what they're telling you. Um, if a patient basically says they didn't get any better after their surgery, you kind of wonder if the indications were accurate, if they actually had the right. Uh, diagnosis going in. If they say they're worse after surgery, then you think that perhaps the first surgery might have done something to create that problem. If they're incompletely better after the surgery, then perhaps you can work with that. Uh, maybe they have unaddressed FAI or, or perhaps they have adhesion or something to that effect that you can address in the second surgery. Um, so I, I try to first call listen to the patient, get, get a sense of kind of what they're experiencing. Uh, when did their symptoms recur or did, were they persistent after that surgery? Um, and at that point, you know, kind of once you get a sense of what they're experiencing, then I think the secondary uh, diagnostic uh, evaluation is going to be imaging. And so obviously x-rays are going to be where you start. An MRI arthrogram can be helpful here. Uh, I don't necessarily do MRI arthrograms in the primary setting, but getting a good sense of the capsule, getting a sense of the soft tissue, um, I think there's value there. And then CT scans to make sure that you understand the bony morphology 
uh, both within the joint and outside the joint too, as well as version and those types of things. That's great. Yeah, that's a very similar approach that I have as well. And um, one point about those CT studies in the revision setting, I found that, uh, you know, in a primary setting, I use those 3D CT scans to measure things like femoral version and acetabular version. And I don't anticipate that those will change in the revision setting, but I still like to get that uh, CT scan in order to really assess the bony morphology, the prior camera section, and what the acetabular rim looks like, especially if using that low-dose protocol, it seems like it's a, it's a study that's well worth its while when you're doing in a revision surgery. Yeah, of course. Again, you're just trying to, it's such a huge investment for a patient. Um, they've already been through one surgery, they've already rehabbed it, they've spent the money on it. And so the second time around, you just gotta make sure that you understand exactly kind of all the different variables that go into uh, getting a good outcome. And in your editorial, you actually gave us a great analogy using golf. So I was hoping you could also introduce that here because I thought that was a nice way to put the overall approach to revision surgeries in perspective. Would you mind just talking us through that analogy? Yes. One of my favorite things about the arthroscopy journal are these editorial commentaries, and mainly because it actually, it's the way that these are written uh, just kind of piques your interest. And so when I was asked to write this one, I wanted to make sure that the general orthopedist could uh, at least be uh, attracted to this article. And so I, I, I was sitting there thinking about, um, I, I made some comment about a golf shot one time and how a hip arthroscopy is like a good golf shot. You get right down the fairway, you know, you feel pretty good about your approach to the hole. And then when you have a, a bad outcome, perhaps you hit your shot into the woods. And so I sort of tried to uh, expand on that with my commentary uh, because anybody can, you know, do a good job in golf if you hit the fairway and you hit the green every single time. It's, it's that person who can get out of the woods commonly is really the one who's uh, going to be the golfer who's going to be able to come back and, and fight again another day. And so, unfortunately, in golf, I find myself in the woods pretty often. So, <laughs> so I, I, the way I try to compare golf to hip arthroscopy is, is that, you know, hitting a good first shot can make the, the rest of the hole much easier. Whereas hitting a bad first shot, the first thing you need to do is get your ball back in play in order to do a good job on the hole. And so I think in, in comparing them to hip arthroscopy, you know, if you hit your, if, you, if, if the first hip scope did not get the optimal outcome, the first thing you do when addressing the second hip scope would be to get the ball back into the fairway, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And it is something interesting about doing a revision hip arthroscopy that was primarily performed by another surgeon because it is a little bit like entering the woods. You don't know what you're going to find. You don't know what technique they used, what kind of uh, implants they used sometimes. And so it is very much um, a, a good analogy of, of what we're dealing with sometimes in these revision hip. So can you talk us through your evolution of this approach to both first-time revision hip arthroscopy and then those who are multiply revised in your own practice, and then how, if at all, this has changed over the years of practice? Yeah, of course. You know, I remember, I mean, all of us started hip scopes at some point, and, and, and initially when you're starting hip scope practice, you're just happy to get into the joint to correct the bony impingement to get a good label repair. And I think that over the course of, of the evolution of my practice, understanding the nuance of hip arthroscopy um, has really defined my uh, uh, evolution as a surgeon. Um, and I think the first thing is just getting the bony, the bony uh, correction right, you know, because you know, just getting a spherical thermal head, making sure you address the 
uh, any rim deformity, subspine, you know, getting that right the first time, I think really makes a huge difference in outcome. And so I think over the course of, of my evolution as a surgeon, I've actually, it actually takes me longer to do a thoroplasty now than it did five years ago, because I, I feel like I can get to all the different corners and I, and I definitely want to make sure I get that right. Um, there's something worse than you have a post-operative x-ray and you realize you haven't adequately addressed the femur. The femur. And so um, that does, that is something that it's a, it's a consideration for me. And probably the most important thing for me is these, this capsular management at this point. You know, I trained at a time uh, where capsular management was sort of in the infancy of its, of its understanding. You know, it, when I was training, you know, we rarely closed capsule. A lot of times we actually take a, lot, a big chunk of capsule out. And I really feel like that's going to end up being, a, um, in some patients at least, a reason why they don't do as well. And so I think that now, nine years in, um, I'm pretty obsessive about the capsular management, making sure that I make the smallest possible capsule to do the work and make sure I close it adequately in order, in order to assure the patient. Um, it's basically, I basically leave the hip the same way I, I found it. Uh, with a closed capsule, except for the impingement correction and the, and the labral pair. And so the reason why I bring that up is I think that a lot of times when you're doing revision hip arthroscopy, what you realize are two things. One, um, sometimes a previous surgeon did not get all the way medial with their femoroplasty or they left a big, you know, they left a big ridge posterior laterally. Um, you know, and, and I, and, and having seen a lot of these revision hip scopes, I start to realize that I need to make sure I get that in the primary setting. And secondly, in revision hip arthroscopy, you know, you get in there and sometimes there's, you see exposed something of psoas tendon or you'll see a giant capsular hole and you realize that patient's probably not doing well because the capsule wasn't adequately managed at the first surgery. And so uh, that's really kind of changed a lot of how I do things. And I think that anybody doing a lot of hip, hip scopes, you learn so much from going back in into a hip uh, and seeing kind of what the hip looks like after it's had a previous surgery. I absolutely agree with you. I think every single revision I've done, um, and the the few of my own that I've done, especially, I think you learn so much and and progress so much as a surgeon uh, every time you see one of those and um, get a patient feeling better. Yeah, I mean, I think you can utilize that knowledge to really improve your primary practice. I, I, and that's the best part about being someone who does a lot of revisions. Is that I think it really does improve your primary practice when you can understand why someone might not be doing well. You, you, you go in there and you actually can physically see it inside the joint. Absolutely. In this published study by Drs. Browning, Clapp, Kravichich, Nwachuku, and No, the authors looked at results after repeat revision hip arthroscopy, meaning the second revision surgery after patients had already had a first revision surgery. And they found that at a minimum of one year follow-up, the repeat revision patients did actually achieve minimally clinically important differences or MCID postoperatively at a similar rate to patients having a primary hip arthroscopy, which was approximately 90% of the time. However, only 30% achieved a patient-acceptable symptomatic state or pass. So a couple of questions based on this finding. First, uh, what were your thoughts on this conclusion, and is this something that you've seen in your own practice? And then second, as you work with residents and fellows, how do you explain the differences in MCID and PASS using this study's findings as an example? Yeah, exactly. I, I really think that these kinds of, of studies are super important for us to understand what we can tell a patient before surgery. Um, because a lot of times a patient wants to, I mean, setting expectations, I think, is really critical. And so you're sitting in clinic with a patient who's had a previous hip scope. You're like, if I have a second hip scope or a third hip scope, like, what can I expect? 
And I think you can tell them pretty reliably you can expect improvement. You're going to see it in a difference. This study would, would, would support that. I think the interesting, interesting thing about this study is that a lot of the second hip arthroscopy or the, the repeat revision hip arthroscopy patients started off at a much lower level than the other two groups. And so these are pretty miserable people if you, if you think about it. They're sitting there in clinic with the, you know, with the, with the baseline score that's pretty, that's pretty low. And so I think you reliably tell them that, yes, if we go back in into your hip and we address the problems that were in there, you can expect an improvement. The question is going to be the magnitude of that improvement. Um, and will you get to what you would consider an acceptable symptomatic state? And so the MCID, or the, mini the minimal clinically important difference, is basically a detectable difference through whatever scale you might use, you know, IHOT 12 or modified hair tip score, you know, um, if you, you can appreciate a difference. And, and some patients are just looking for that, you know, if I can just get a little bit better, I'll be happy, you know. And so it's important to set that expectation. However, when you're trying to look at the patient acceptable symptomatic state, we're basically taking into account, you know, all their activities of daily living, their pain, their function. When you get to a, a point after surgery in which you find it to be acceptable, you know, only one in three patients really get that after repeat revision. And so I think, that, again, that's just to me a really important finding from the study in order to be able to explain uh, to patients who might be looking at another surgery, the cost of it, you know, six or eight weeks on crutches possibly, you know, three or four months recovery, is it worth it? Um, and so in my own practice, yes, I've definitely seen that. You know, you get a primary hip scope with a big cam, and you can pretty reliably tell them you're going to be have pretty happy when you're done. You'll get back to a lot of your activities. You see somebody who's had two previous failed surgeries, um, and, and maybe maybe you kind of you, you temper their enthusiasm for going through a third surgery. As far as how I explain this to my residents, I think, and fellows, I think it's really important to understand this stuff. And I think I really do try to utilize this to help set patient expectations after surgery. So MCID is going to be a relative value. You know, how, it's basically a, a, a difference you can detect, whereas a pass score would be a more absolute value that's been set in the literature by you know, previous studies. And so I try to explain that is, is, is how, and this study kind of helps me you know, explain that to fellows and residents as far as how th that difference actually occurs. Yeah, that's an excellent distillation of that. Uh, and I, I think it's a very important concept, as you pointed out. Now, also in this specific study, the authors found that there was less bony work happening at the time of the repeat revision surgery than at the initial revision, revision surgery, and that labral reconstructions were occurring about 15% of the time in the repeat revision cases. And additionally, they noted that all repeat revision cases had some sort of comprehensive capsular management performed at the time of surgery, with half actually requiring a capsular reconstruction. So how did you interpret these results? And, and is this what you're also seeing at Virginia? I think by the time someone's had a second revision surgery, hopefully the bony work has been done. However, a lot of times you have to sort of, I'd say, tinker with it, or you know, there might be a residual ridge or something to that effect. But for the most part, you know, somebody who's had two surgeries, a lot of times the issues could be soft tissue. You know, it's, it, there's going to be scar tissue that's formed, adhesions you take down. The labor looks pretty junky when you're done with it. And so I do think that going in there knowing that you're going to have soft tissue work to be done is uh, important in your preoperative kind of uh, discussion with the patient and kind of your planning. Um, and so, yeah, I'm seeing that in Virginia here too. You know, somebody's had two, two surgeries, perhaps, you know, 
two labor repairs. A lot of times a residual laden uh, is no longer going to be functional. And so doing a labor reconstruction, you have to be at least be, be planning for that. I think more importantly, though, is, is a capsular management picture of this. So half of these patients required capsular reconstruction. So I think as a surgeon going into a repeat revision, you have to be prepared to address the capsule. So all these patients in this study had some type of comprehensive capsular closure and half required capsular reconstruction. So I think that going in, you have to at least have a graph prepared, uh, have that conversation with the patient, prepare them for the post-operative rehab, which is gonna be different, um, just so that you know that you know, when they've had, they fully recover from that second surgery, the capsule is not gonna be your issue anymore. Yeah, I agree. Also, uh, in your editorial, you noted that after you read this study, you came away with two main conclusions. Can you discuss those two main conclusions from these authors' results with the listeners? Yeah, uh, the two conclusions I really came with from the study is one, don't give up hope. You know, a hip arthroscopy patient is a very fragile patient, you know, especially someone who's had two failures. And they're sitting in your clinic, they're probably, they, they, they might have come from far away to see you. And you can, from, from the results of the study, you can tell them there's hope. And I think that's really important. Don't give up on the, on the, on the two time failure because if you can identify the etiology of failure and, and execute um, a good second, a second revision surgery, you can get them better. You know, you might not get them perfect, but you can get them better. So don't give up hope. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, is, is get it right the first time. You know, it's the whole thing is if you can figure out how to avoid the first and second revision, then you really are helping your, your entire patient population. And so I think that's, the, the, to me, the most valuable thing I learned from the study was all the different problems they found the second time around could have been avoided possibly with a better primary surgery. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I think, you know, maybe one thing that we could add to this is um, both you and I have very subspecialized hip arthroscopy practices, but if a patient shows up to someone's practice who doesn't do much hip arthroscopy and has had two prior surgeries, you know, maybe phone a friend and somebody who would be prepared to do these additional procedures that may be required at the time of that revision. Exactly. Andrea, one of the best things about being hip arthroscopist is the network here. I mean, I think you can, you and I can both speak to this, that we, that the groups we have in our, in our societies are so helpful. You know, here in, in Virginia, I have Andy Wolfram up the road. I've got Chad Mather down at Duke. You know, I can call Andrea Spiker up in Wisconsin, um, <laughs> Thomas Bird at Nashville. I mean, these people are all on my phone. And, and trust me, all of us are in this together. We're trying to figure out the best thing to do for patients. And I think your patients will benefit by you just, uh, by me or any any surgeon, just kind of swallowing your pride, understanding what you know, what you don't know, and making sure that you do the best thing for your patients. Yeah, that's an absolutely excellent point, And I live by that as well. So what questions do you think we still have to answer related to revision hip arthroscopy procedures going forward? You know, I think that, you know, we talk all about the structural components to the, the bone and the soft tissue. There's just so much more out there in the world of hip. From a stand, you know, these patients have had multiple hip surgeries over the course of you know two or three years. The neural elements to this, you know, the, the muscle balance dysfunction, you know, you get muscle atrophy. The overall biomechanics of the hip are altered by this, and, and, and also even prior to their first hip arthroscopy, they probably had some some dysfunction. So I think we really have to understand the overall hip function as it relates to a, a malfunctioning hip. Um, you know, it's easy to say the labrum's torn. You know, there's FAI. But what's harder to, I think, for us to really distill is the overall biomechanical dysfunction that occurs around a bad hip. And as a surgeon, you know, patients come in, I have a labral tear, I need you to fix it. 
but the the soft tissue, the muscle, the neural elements around that labral tear, um, I think are still things we don't understand completely. Um, and I don't know how to understand it, but I do know there's some patients you can do perfect perfect procedure on, they still have issues with it because you don't understand what's outside the hip joint. That's excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gwathmi, for sharing your thoughts with us today. It's been a true pleasure speaking with you, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you so much, Andre. I really enjoyed doing this. And, and to all the hip, hip arthroscopists out there, you know, we're all almost together, and we're all trying to do the best for our patients. Dr. Gwathmi's editorial titled Repeat Revision Hip Arthroscopy, Unaddressed Femoral Acetabular Impingement, Labral Damage, and Capsular Deficiency Are Commonly Encountered can be found in the December 2021 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal or online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes our episode of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Music